0: Knowing what body this character has really drops me. Actions, in. the thesaurus that has become like
1: a bible to Creative me. visualization that really set me free.
0: I love actioning, very specific action. Group. Welcome back! Welcome back to season two. My name is oh, Ann Penner and I'm, I'm, an I'm, I'm, I'm an associate professor of theater. I'm I'm an associate professor of theater. No, that's not true. <laughs> I, Hi, everyone. Welcome to season two, episode three of the Actors Mind podcast. Today, we are going to be talking a little bit about perspective and feedback and the concept of psychological distance. And those of you who know a little bit about acting might be hearing these topics and saying, I really don't know what the heck she's talking about. What does this have to do with acting? So if you haven't noticed, in season two, we've actually started with a little bit of a different take. On the topics that we've covered in season one, we talked about pretty um, established kind of self-contained techniques that you might teach in a series of classes and then use as needed in productions or whatever uh, you might need them as, as an actor. And in season two, we started by taking a couple steps back and thinking about productions from a broader standpoint. So our first two episodes were about auditioning and casting respectively, which are the sort of preparation phases for a production, but certainly relevant to an actor's work. And what we're talking about today is over the whole process of a production, what are the various ways that the different people involved in the production are able to uh, take in and experience what's happening And in particular, how do the different people in the different roles that they're playing in their production use that experience to craft um, feedback to influence and better the production as it moves toward its final state.
2: Yeah. So the question I'm going to ask throughout the episode is what are the best practices for theater artists, uh, as Katiri said, taking perspective of their work and giving and ultimately receiving feedback. And we're talking about actors, directors, dramaturgs, audience members, and critics.
0: So as you zoom out from actor to director to dramaturg to audience member to critic, one of the things that occurred to me is that this is actually really nicely aligned with a, a collection of of concepts within psychological science that together are known as psychological distance. So psychological distance is part of a broader theory called construal level theory. It's a little bit less important what it's called, but psychological distance refers to in a number of different ways, the amount of space there is between your own first person sort of egocentric frame of seeing the world, and then various ways to sort of do zoom out and get get distance or space from that. So I'll talk about the different components of psychological distance, but that's what we're sort of aligning, especially with the perspective piece. I think there's a direct relationship between perspective and psychological distance. And then um, there's an indirect relationship or there's some implications for feedback, but maybe not a direct relationship there.
2: And the image that we've worked with as we were preparing is a megaphone. So we start small and we we go broad. And what we mean by that is we're gonna begin with how an actor takes perspective of her work um, and working out ultimately to critic, moving again through director, dramaturg, audience, and critic.
0: And as we get further and further along in the megaphone, um, most aspects of psychological distance get greater and greater. So there's further and further distance from this sort of the, the the reason this is still the actor's mind is that we have the actor as the egocentric sort of first person perspective. Right.
2: Yeah, I would love for you to define the different types of psychological distance.
0: Totally. So psychological distance, again, is part of construal-level theory, which is um, a really generative and interesting theory um, that was uh, largely put port- forth by uh, Yaakov Trope and Nira Lieberman and has been taken and theorized about and uh, experimented upon many, many times since the initial theory. And they break psychological distance down into four main components. So you can achieve distance from yourself via physical distance. So people have more distance from you the further away they are from you. You can achieve distance from self in terms of social distance. So social distance is a little tricky. So you can have more distance on your own self. So, for example, talking about yourself in the first person versus third person perspective would be achieving a little bit more distance in the third person. But then people who are not you have even more social distance from you. And then you have more social uh, closeness to people who you know really well versus acquaintances versus strangers, right, versus maybe like robots. I don't think robots is part of the theory, but that would be like uh, the extreme of social distance, right? The 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 least familiar other, and then temporal distance. Temporal refers to time. Um, So interesting thing about temporal distance is that you can achieve temporal distance from yourself in two directions because you can achieve temporal distance from yourself in the future, but you can also achieve Uh, you can also achieve temporal distance from yourself in the past. So things that happened longer ago and things that are happening further in the future have more temporal distance than things that are happening in the present. And then the last one, and maybe the most intriguing is hypothetical distance. Mm. So hypothetical, Anna is intrigued. I'm intrigued by hypotheticality. Hypotheticality refers to hypothetical distance, which is really the degree of real versus fictional content and whatever going on, right? So if something is actually happening that has very low hypothetical distance, um, a fictional story that has never happened would have very high hypothetical distance. And it's interesting if you you think about um, you can start to think about interactions between all of these things, and it makes your head explode a little bit. But if you think about things that happen in the future, some of those are very uh, low on hypotheticality. Like whether I will wake up tomorrow morning and have coffee, you know, before seven a.m. is a very, very high likelihood <laughs> of happening, even though it hasn't happened yet. Whereas me waking up tomorrow morning and finding the winning lottery ticket in my house is extremely low, especially since I haven't bought one yet. Right. So, um, yeah, yeah, things that uh, that haven't happened yet. Can vary in their in their hypotheticality. And though I'm going to be
2: uh, sort of working with this psychological concept in terms of how theater artists communicate with each other Mm -hmm. uh, and the best practices for that. uh, Just briefly, a quick digression is these different types of psychological distance. I think are useful both as an actor and director and acting teacher when talking about the bodies and the uh, you know moving through space in a story and the characters and how uh, physically, you know, close or far are they to each other? Uh, They are existing in the same temporal space and how socially close they are, right? How much intimacy, whether it's platonic or romantic or sexual or spiritual, uh, philosophical intimacy exists between these two characters? Does it change over the course? Do they start as strangers and end up as lovers by the end of the scene (laughs) or the play? is definitely something even this past quarter that we were working, I was playing with without even knowing that it was like, it was called psychological yeah. distance.
0: And I think the theory of psychological distance, especially as couched in construal level theory, really emphasizes the degree to which these things inform each other, right? That if you have closer physical distance to someone, you're more likely to have, you know, closer, closer social distance to them and this yeah. sort of back and forth between all of these. Yeah. And I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, my graduate student, Damon Abraham, has been writing a theoretical piece on how psychological distance relates to emotion regulation via appraisal theory. So we've been really mucking around in these different distance dimensions. So it is true that, that these things inform each other. And I think from a storytelling standpoint, if you want to convey very close social distance in an instant, you create a tableau where two people are sitting knee to knee, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is a very, it's a shortcut for conveying that social distance, mm-hmm. but it's almost even more interesting to me psychologically times where they differ. Right. So like how, like, think about the tension of two people who feel like, think about, um, uh, think about a uh, 12th night. Mm-hmm. Right. So think about the twins yeah. when they see each other, and twins, I'm getting goosebumps, uh-huh. twins have very little social distance, right? right. They, they, they're they arguably as close as two people can be who are different people because they have the same DNA. And most of the time when that's staged, they're far across the stage from one another, yeah. right? And so their physical distance is high, but they see each other and their social connection is so palpable. And that dichotomy is really like, ooh. So... But in general, they totally travel together. (laughs) I love that. I love that. I love that. So, yeah. I mean, I'd love for you to talk at first, Anne, about this first level of perspective. Yeah. Um, In terms of your experience as an actor, like, talk about when you want to try to get perspective on your own performance and how well that works.
2: I love that. So I want to talk about both uh, sort of what I think is a healthy way of taking perspective of your work, mm-hmm. um, especially with the more training you have and unhealthy ways. And one thing I just want to reference, which I think is related, is how you talked about first person versus third person. Mm-hmm. I really think that can potentially be useful for an actor. I think when you are cast or you begin with a role and you're not that familiar with the character, um, you do think of them in the third person. They are, mm-hmm. they are um, socially different from you, right? Distant from you. And then over the course of the rehearsal, you're looking for ways of translating third person into first person so that by the time that you're performing, you are capable of entering into a first person relationship with that character and then dropping out and and treating them as different, but but that really sort of healthy come and go. Um, So when we're working in rehearsal especially, but also one could say in performance, I think one way that actors can take a healthy perspective is if they're implementing tools, doable, tangible, tangible tools that they are in charge of, right? Uh, I'm going to try this new want or this new objective, mm-hmm. right? I'm going to tweak my given circumstances. I'm going to change the prebeat. I'm going to change the, the, the thing that just happened to me before I enter the scene, I'm going to change my my relationship towards the character. Uh, I'm going to change the setting a little bit. When you tweak those, I'm going to action it differently. Um, and then you do a run of it. You can assess in a relatively objective way, like, "Oh, that fed me, right? That okay, new yeah. idea, that that tweak that I made improved mm-hmm. my my performance from, a, from an from a first person perspective, yeah. right? I was just going to say this is
0: all." It's, it's still from your perspective. Because yeah. I
2: can't see what it looks like from the audience. Um, you can't. Or I can't. That's what we'll get to. But Or it didn't. It fed me less, right? Right. Um, so I think that's a really healthy way is, is assessing the effect of the tools that you are in control of. What I find not useful at all, and I've observed really beautiful, excellent, well-trained, vulnerable actors do this, is, is is? you know, they play a scene or they play the play and they're like, oh, that was a horrible performance, a sort of generalized uh, negative comment about how they're doing. And I... I I have two thoughts about that is it's way too general a comment. Maybe you fucked up a, a a, a one scene or Mm -hmm. or a particular moment where you weren't attentive enough to your scene partner, or you really screwed up the lines or you um, had a coughing fit, right. And couldn't actually (laughs) do your job. But the other thing is, is you have no idea what the audience perspective is as they're watching it. They are having a very, very different perspective. And so to be gentle with yourself, I, I learned, um, You know, I feel like a long time ago, like you can never, if you're in several scenes in a play, you're never going to have a perfect performance. You might nail that. That scene might feel awesome and that's awesome. But then that scene, maybe not so much. Mm -hmm. So that you're just, you want to be as compassionate and as compassionate as possible.
0: Yeah. And to not try, I think the, the way this relates to perspective is to keep in mind that you only really have perspective on how it felt to you. And so to say yeah. like that performance was horrible is you presuming the audience's experience, which you can't possibly
2: Yeah, and when know. I've received that as a co-actor, that actor might only be commenting on their performance, but there's a little bit of unintentional belittling of the totally. whole play that, that frustrates me because yeah, because you, just what Kateri said, you're assuming the audience's yeah. impression of that, which affects all of us.
0: And the other interesting thing we were going to talk about a little bit, I think that that um, is a good segue from from what you were pointing out in terms of belittling the other actors, is there is sort of etiquette surrounding whether it's appropriate to comment to your fellow performers about how you thought a scene or... A run or a performance sort of wins. Yeah, it's not a. Pro- <laughs> I mean, unless it's a generalized, um,
2: you know, hey, you did good work. I thought yeah. I thought your run, you were really great. Yeah. But but what will often happen with you know experienced, uh, wonderfully opinionated actors <laughs> is they will give feedback to their co actor, their scene partner, uh, which I mean, under certain you know academic uh, acting class perspective, probably helps in uh, uh, happens inevitably in the sense that there's not always a director teacher there but in a professional situation you don't do that
0: yeah it's hard a lot of actors have a director's brain yeah uh and so it's it takes a a fair amount of self-control to not actually like when you see something that someone could be doing better and you actually know how to communicate it pretty clearly it's really hard to like sit on your hands metaphorically and and not make that little piece better can you talk about the
2: uh the social distance between character and actor
0: yeah i think you actually touched on it really beautifully right that that in some ways, there's always at least a little bit of social distance unless you are playing yourself on stage. And even then, for most plays, you're playing a fictional character who is not you, who was not written based on you. And so there's a little bit of distance there. Um, but part of the goal of the rehearsal process and, and uh, you know, any, any work that you do is to... Um, I was about to say decrease that distance, but I would actually say find bridges, right? Mm-hmm. Find uh, mm-hmm. these parallelisms, these links between you and the character in yeah. order to have moments w- where you are in, th- in that first person perspective. Yeah. But you always maintain a little bit of like, this is yeah. the character and this is me. I've
2: been thinking about this a lot. And there's that sort of cliched worry that uh, with people with uh, who are curious about acting but maybe afraid to act are uh-huh. worried that they will become the character, that the character will start to control them. Um, I think there are a few extreme cases where um, a little bit of that happens. Some- I think... There is a healthy overlap. I love this idea of bridges, Mm -hmm. and I'm right now picturing almost like a Venn diagram where you sort of have all the unique attributes that make you you and all these attributes that make the character the character. And there's a lot of overlap there, but there's still some distinction. Um, I think what's exciting is, though I would never recommend someone trying to hang out in character 24-7 uh, I'm shaking my head. Yeah. No, 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 not good. Some, I would
0: not recommend that either no. as a psychologist. Ding. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> something that
2: happens in a healthy way. I think at the end of a rehearsal process or during performance is most of my living waking life is as Anne, but I'll drop into while I'm doing the dishes or while I'm talking to my kid or while I'm driving or while I'm teaching or while I'm making coffee, I will think, how would the character behave in this in this particular set of circumstances and I think considering that throughout the day is pretty cool but you can push it away you can then totally return to yourself you have control about how much you're inside and outside of that
0: yeah and I imagine that a lot of that more intellectual work is probably done in the third person where you might be if you're just in your everyday life and you're wondering how Mercutio you know reacts to the situation that you would wonder that a little bit more abstractly a little bit more in a remote sense and then you might use that as inspiration to play with some certain ideas or something. Yeah. You know, but it's very likely that you like drop into character while you're doing the dishes and then cut yeah. out again. Am I right? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah. It even happened um I just did some pre sort of fight choreography work mm. for Mercutio and it was I basically the main objective was just to remind myself of the essential tools of fighting with a sword. Right? That was the goal, like to get yeah. that in my body. But what was happening was there's a particular fight where there are circumstances and there's Mercutio as character. And the director and I had these really fun and engaging conversations with, oh, I think, you know, she would behave this way here. And don't you think this is how she would treat Tybalt? Oh, so fun. you're dropping. You're thinking in the head of
0: Mercutio, in and out, like it's very fluid, as you're learning this technical stuff. I sometimes come up with hypotheses for studies while we're sitting here, and I just thought of one, which was, I wonder if you track over rehearsal process in a play. Mm -hmm. So background important piece of information is one of the ways to measure social distance really reliably is to look at people's pronoun use, right? To look at their first person versus third person pronoun use. Um, and there are some, um, indication that when you encourage people, to take like a longer term perspective which would be like a temporal distance manipulation it actually has an influence on how much third person language they use does it it's, increase it yeah it increases yeah. it so but it'd be interesting to see over the rehearsal process like even if you're on stage with a script in your hand my hypothesis would be that early in the process actors would be more likely to pause and turn to the director and say could she grab this right now right. or would she do this and right. talk about the character in the third person yeah. whereas maybe as the rehearsals go on or conversely you could say sub- Substituted, like maybe more experienced actors from the very beginning will say, Can I do this? Yeah. You know, would I do this right now? Yeah. Uh, That'd be so. That's really interesting. And then my brain. But now you can't be in my study
2: because I've told you the hypothesis. I want to be in your study. We have in bold main take home for the actor is uh, not enough distance to be super strong in shaping the process, which is I'm mixed about now, which is I do think I do think actors have some power in shaping their individual process, but not in doing the director's work
0: for them. Right. And I think the two main areas that the actor is lacking in perspective or in distance is because the actor has no temporal distance. The actor can only observe things as they're happening. I guess you have a little bit because you can reflect on it after the fact, right but like it's i don't know it's a pretty big load to like try to remember how it's going at the time and stay yeah. engaged in the scene and of course you cannot have any physical distance from what's happening so you don't have that perspective of the stage pictures or where people are in relationship right. to you you can't step outside your own body and watch yourself doing the scene so that is what the director is for am i right
2: yeah let's talk about <laughs> directing so hey directors and i'm a director too forgive me because i'm going to brush over a whole bunch of responsibilities this is a whole other
0: <laughs> <laughs> the <basically> director's <laughs> mind I mean, hold on, play the intro again <laughs> the
2: director's da, da, mind da, da, da.
0: for the next two and a half minutes <laughs> so forgive me because I am skimming over
2: many of the things the director does they choose the play they want to work on uh, they figure out all the um, they have long, beautiful, creative, innovative conversations with designers uh, they have a relationship with a stage manager etc. So we're just talking about in rehearsal the um, One of the many jobs of the director is to give the actor actors' feedback in order to shape the story. And they're giving feedback... Uh, I'm, I'm interested in the feedback they give to um, build the character and the characterization and the relationship and what we would call all the sort of Stanislavski analysis. Like, are we all clear and on the same page and in the same world when it comes to who these people are, what the relationships are to each other, what they want, what the circumstances of the world of the time period of the setting are. And then also, once they get on their feet... Um, you know, after they've done whatever the director decides is the appropriate table work. Or however else they're moving around. Or else they're moving around. Thank you. That was a very general comment. Um, then they are also building the stage pictures and they're having opinions and shaping the, the composition, the bodies mm-hmm. through through time and space. Directors all work as differently as, as actors do. And there's some fabulous directors who are going to stop and start a scene several times um, to work really uh, intricately. And then there's a lot of uh, directors who allow you to kind of move through a whole scene and give you feedback. And they all have have different philosophies about that.
0: Yeah. So I think the two most important distinctions between actor and director are going to be, of course, the social distance. So the director is in charge of not just one character, right? The actor has to have a relationship of self to one character in the play. And then they have to keep in mind the closeness of that character's relationships. That's important. But the director really has their eye on everyone right all all of the actors in the play and all of the characters more importantly so there's a piece of social distance where they're in charge of the world which is always going to have more distance from any one character than the actor playing that character is and i would argue probably most importantly artistically the director has that physical distance of being able to see relationally where people are how stage pictures are looking keeping in mind all of the on one hand boring but on the other hand super impactful technical details like can we light that piece of the stage and you know that sort of thing um i don't think there's a huge uh impact of temporal or hypothetical distance for the director. So I think the two biggest ones for director are self and physical distance.
2: Yeah. You know, most of the time a director will be in the audience. They will be assessing the work from mm-hmm. the audience's perspective. They're building the story so that it is clear to the to the audience. I, yeah. um, I had an experience uh, when I was teaching directing several years ago of a really fabulous student director and one who entered DU as an 18 year old Identifying as a director, which is rare, ah. um, working with really specific detail on stage with the actors, so very close to the actors and asking him to move with such specificity. And I encouraged him to to move back into the audience because I think that usually is the stronger, especially when you're building compositions. Right. I do I do often as a director jump on stage and talk to someone
0: yeah.
2: uh, closely just when we're talking about something doesn't have to do with staging, right? It has to do with character yeah.
0: and in my experience, good directors also make it a habit of sitting in several different seats in the house, especially around the edges. Like Mm -hmm. as you get to the point of doing full runs so that you Mm -hmm. make sure you understand how those pictures look, not from just one seat in the house. You know, usually the reason why the center seats in a, one of the reasons the center seats in a theater sell so well, (laughs) I think is because that's where the director's sitting most (laughs) of the time. So that's like the optimal view. (laughs) I came to a preview once and like, we you know we were, it was like a choose your own seat like invited preview, and the tech table was still up, and I was like you gotta sit sit right in front <laughs> of the tech, tech table. table like that's where they've all been playing for the last week I agree, and also arguably you can't if you're thinking about building a
2: stage picture yeah you you cannot build it to look as good or look the same from all perspectives no. right this is what you're saying. I'm just using different words to say the same thing
0: But and- you you have to you have to make sure you're you're inviting in all mm-hmm. perspectives that you have that you're selling a seat for. Yeah, and when you think about
2: the space theater uh, at the Denver Center, anything that's in the round, you are trying to equitably stage it so that everyone in those five sections can see, see the play equally. I have a couple of examples of Really good directors giving me feedback that improved the moment, but felt weird to me, and yeah. I had to come to terms with the fact that they actually knew better than me. So because of
0: their psychological distance, distance <laughs> right? Well, they were like, yes, and and
2: physical distance. Yeah. So I, uh, one of my dear friends, directed me in Savage in Limbo, and at the end, she said, "Okay, Savage is going to look. She's going to sit. She's going to face forty-five degrees, um, sort of downright. She's going to look at her hand. She's going to say this line. She's going to look at her palm. She's going to say this line. She's going to put the hand down and look up. I thought, God, that's specific. Like what, 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 why? And I, and I, and I over the course of the run figured it out, but she didn't, she didn't psychologically explain it. She just said this and it, it, I I understood that it played well Uh sort of in the audience because that was the perspective that she
0: was taking. And then another example is, um, and she gave you that direction in third person. I don't remember. Oh, you just repeated it back I to us. I just repeated it in first person. You did. Uh, and then the second one, yeah, she might have said you. I don't remember. That's oh. <laughs> And the second <laughs> You'll never, you'll, <laughs> you won't be able to concentrate ever again. You're just going to be noting <laughs> distance it first? markers. Was first person. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And then the other one was a director of Symbaline knowing exactly how Cymbeline needed to sound, and that I needed to really lean into the two-dimensionality of the character, that the character was just this evil queen. yeah, And the more I could push, Almost the concept, the idea, the yeah. almost caricature yeah. of her, that worked for the audience. To me, I thought, but it's not full body. There's not hot blood running coursing through this character's bones, bones, body. You know. <laughs> but it, it worked for what he was creating in this yeah. particular production. And I had to and I uh, I had to trust it, and he was right. Yeah. So, I, yeah, so I,
0: that's I, how the director is able to do their job and, and why, I mean, I, I think of all of the people in our chain, um, you know, the the director, arguably, it's their full-time job to to give constant feedback, right? They're, they do the most shaping, the most frequent, and the most substantial shaping yeah, and we're of w- the piece.
2: And though we're going to wait uh, to the end of the episode to talk about how to receive... Yeah. Feedback. I have a, a few more uh, ideas about how a director can give feedback well. Yeah, uh, a, a couple ideas. I was talking to a friend uh, who did a show recently in Denver who struggled a bit with his. Uh, dialogue, his conversation, how he how he connected with his director, and they worked differently. One of them worked very efficiently, very technically, yeah. and the other worked more associatively and more sort of li- liminally. <laughs> and and I th- and it got me thinking. Like, oh, th- I think a trait of a really strong director is that they know how to direct each individual actor differently, mm-hmm. and I will say in some ways the same for an actor. Like, wouldn't it be great if an actor could kind of receive feedback in different ways?
0: And probably more broadly, just a good management to, like technique, right? Like, just if you are in a management position in any way, if you're the chair of a department or you're overseeing, you know, students, like that sort of individualization... Um, it demonstrates that you're paying attention. It's, 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 it's almost, it's a signal of empathy. It's like, I, I, I'm trying to figure out how you work. So here's how I think you would want to hear this. How am I doing? Yeah.
2: And this word, um, deliberation, came up mm. has uh, come up in my brain, and I think this idea of sort of careful consideration of not just what I want to say to you, so, right? So, a, so, a, so, a director say watches a run through and is taking a bunch of notes on computer or notes or on you know paper, and then so it's taking perspective, uh-huh. and then it's figuring out what to share. Right? There might be a bunch of notes that you're going to save and mm-hmm. a few that you're never going to say. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> exclamation but point, how, exclamation
2: how? Right, which ones do I want to say? And then how do I take this this bit of objective information, right, and translate to this particular character? It takes a lot of sensitivity and totally. a lot of empathy. I, I wrote down um, that director's job, in a way, is less emotional. Uh, and something I just want to talk to you briefly is I think... Um, And I don't think everyone would agree with this, but the actor's job is difficult because they are themselves. The tool they're using is their body and their voice. It's very vulnerable. And I think the more directors can not coddle, but hear and encourage actors, especially in the first third or half, and not be critical until we get maybe to the second, sure. to, the, to the sort of second half of a rehearsal process, it empowers actors to have opinions, it empowers actors f- to increase their stage presence, to feel like they belong there. So the more that yeah. you can bring the actors in, encourage their opinions, some of them will be horrible, horrible yes. ideas, right? But to it's not so much that you wanna hear all the ideas, it's that you wanna encourage the actor to feel safe to experiment with you.
0: And That's very, great. Yeah. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't start rehearsals like the director in Friends who says, let's get started my talking props. <laughs> <laughs> no? Bad idea? Bad idea. Though some directors do treat, right, actresses talking props. Oh, I've been a talking uh, prop. Have you? Yeah. Um, so... The, we inserted dramaturg here as the next sort of stage in the process as a recognition that even the director, even though it's her job to keep that broader perspective mm-hmm. and to have that social and physical distance, even the director gets uh, can get lost. Uh, not lost, but can... Um, Can lose a little bit of that objectivity. And one of those things, um, one of the byproducts of temporal distance or of temporal closeness, I should say, is familiarity, right? Like if you've heard something else, if you heard like a line, for example, and you've heard it 16 times and you heard it two seconds ago, you have a different perspective on it than if you've never heard it before. So the opposite of familiarity is novelty. And so it's often important to get fresh eyes on a production that have that aspect of novelty who don't have the history, who don't have that temporal hit, you know, distance. Um, and to get that person's take on what's going on and whether or not the story is being told effectively. So that is just one, as I understand, of many, many roles that a dramaturg can serve. Dramaturgs yeah. are kind of magical. They can yeah, do a lot of badass. different things. I mean, it's, it's they do, hey, all you dramaturgs out there, we're
2: sorry for, for skipping over all the various things you do. You do lots of <laughs> things. You do a lot of things. But I, I actually looked up the definition, um, the theory and practice of dramatic composition. I, I, I want to support, I want to agree with what Kateri said, which is, um, I think when dramaturgs have, have sat in on rehearsals that I've directed and watched to run through, some of the most useful uh, questions they can answer is, hey, these are the parts of the story that are clear, and yeah. these are the parts that I was confused about, but that aren't. But they do all sorts of things in terms of translating the, 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 the play that just exists as black squiggles on a page into something living and breathing. So their eyes and ears are on how all these different how the analysis actually gets translated into something living and breathing on stage. Are the characters, are the characterizations as clear as possible, the relationships, the wants, the circumstances? And just to support Kateri saying that the 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 dramaturg is is a tool for the director who
0: loses perspective yeah. after so
2: much repetition.
0: Totally. Right? It's, and it's only human, right? Like I've said before, our brains are built to notice things. And our brains are built for efficiency. Like, we are not built to watch the same thing over and over again with fresh eyes. Our brain goes, I've seen that before. Our brain emphasizes the differences in what we've seen before to say, this is the new part. That's the important part. Because usually, if you're sitting and watching the same thing over and over again, you can start to ignore it. Like, that's adaptive to not pay attention anymore. So, a director, and to some extent, an actor, is fighting against repetition being... A, a pit of 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 this of sameness it, it, it's either either sameness and boringness or overemphasizing difference just to make it feel fresh yeah. and in all likelihood you want to have more subtle variation you know repetition to repetition so a dramaturg mm-hmm. can really come in and help recalibrate
2: sometimes in a in a, a situation with a ton of historical research and yeah. textual research the dramaturg will actually be in the room for the whole or the bulk of the rehearsal process. Right. And they are there watching things as they unfold and then feeding, um, giving feedback to the director. And will only give feedback directly to actors if the director gives... gives uh, It gives the okay to do that. In my most recent experiences, a dramaturg will either have a packet or at this point more likely like a Google Drive where they have a bunch of research and the actors, you know, they read what they can and some of it is useful for this particular character and not this particular character. It's may be rare for an actor to read through the all 300 pages yeah. of it, but they're just allowing you to kind of dip into some factual information about the characters or the time period uh, and and then it's the actor's job to kind of discover which of this is actionable. Yeah. And so what I love about a dramaturg is they give you this abundance of information and then the actor gets to go, yes, 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 yes. Not quite sure how to use that, right? Yeah. But it's it, there's always some wonderful usefulness yeah. and, and and um. Activeness, activity in it.
0: And we, we talked a lot in season one about particularizing your, your, your choices. And so I think that Google Drive or packet or whatever cloud-based sharing system (laughs) you're using, you know, is just a bunch of hooks for you to grab onto, you know, whether it's a detail about how costumes were made and whether they were painful in one particular part of your body, even if your costume hopefully isn't actually painful in that way, that might be a really specific detail that will particularize your physical performance. Um, and no one might ever know that that is where that's coming from but it it, it roots it in authenticity and even more importantly it roots it in something extremely specific and as you said playable and I
2: used to uh, poke fun not at dramaturgs but sometimes at actors who would be super and I'm so embarrassed that I'm admitting this now who would be in my mind, sort of overly specific and abundant about given circumstances. <laughs> I can't believe I'm saying this as an acting teacher because I thought, how could you know that event that happened to your character when they were six and a half with your brother help, right? <laughs> but actually, it doesn't all help. But none of it hurts. Yeah. So now I've decided that the you know the more dramaturgical you know information, the better, and the more uh, the more I can answer those discrete specific questions yeah. about given circumstances. It's not
0: all going to play to the audience but a lot is going to help me. Yeah. So the dramaturg in some ways, I think really is a proxy, a bridge between the work the director is doing in the rehearsal room every day and getting that perspective. And then the experience of the audience who comes in and sees the production, usually just once, right? So the dramaturg is meant to communicate to the director. And I guess in some cases, the rest of the company, what is being successful from uh, you know, at that point in rehearsal. But from the perspective of if, if I were an audience member, you know, here's what I think uh, I, I would experience. So they're they're sort of meant to simulate that audience uh, experience. And audience members, when they come in the door, if you think about it, they continue to have social distance. Um, you know, unless it's like a play about their lives. <laughs> 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 Pretty rare. Which sometimes
2: audiences feel sure
0: they continue to have physical distance. They're out in the house usually, although there are some ways that theaters are set up where the audience is interspersed with the performance. And so there is less physical distance there. Again, if you think about the opposite of temporal distance um, or, or, you know, or, or one component of temporal distance being novelty, most audience members have a novel perspective on it, you know, which is important. And, Part of this sort of contract of an audience member is to engage in what most people call suspension of disbelief, which I dare say relates to hypotheticality in a really yeah. interesting way. So suspension of disbelief is this implicit agreement that when you go and watch some sort of fictional... um portrayal whether it's a movie or a play or this is even active when you're reading a book right that even though you know it is fiction and you know that it's not real that you're going to pretend it's real that you're going to take in the given circumstances um and you're going to just sort of give a pass uh to to maybe a a few things so you're 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 not going to jump up and be like, that's not real blood when, yeah. you know, when stage blood comes out or something like that, that you're you're sort of um, uh, buying into the, the circumstances of, of the play for a day. So that's a, a complicated kind of hypotheticality agreement.
2: <laughs> yeah, which I don't fully, I mean, I've been an audience member thousands of times and I don't fully understand it. But yeah. we, um, we read this really quick um sort of summary of Suspension of Disbelief in Scientific American called What Brain Activity Can Explain Suspension of Disbelief. And one thing that excited me and I feel like has some truth to it from a layperson's perspective is you are coexisting in these two realities. And because you are passively sitting, usually except in a more immersive I mean there's other more experimental examples, but usually an audience member is sitting and mm-hmm. staying sitting in one place. Um, that there's um I guess it's called disinter- disinterestedness, which is not quite what I mean in terms of your... It's, it's not that you're disinterested, but the passivity gives you permission not to take action inside of the given circumstances that you're watching unfold. So you're safe sitting there, yeah. right, with your glass of wine next to the people you love. Without while this ice. Thing, without ice, while this thing... <laughs> right, while this thing unfolds and you are coexisting. I think there's a parallel with an actor being both an actor... Yeah right the reality of i'm just an actor up here moving and talking and the imagined world of character the audience is having a similar experience yeah. of just being an audience member sitting and engaging involving being hooked into transported by yeah. by the story
0: and there's definitely i think there's a, a, a i think you're very right to point out the sense of, of safety there's like a bubble uh there's a, 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 a of reality where you you know that there are certain things that are never going to happen right or like you know that none of the people you're seeing are really going to die yeah and i think emotionally there is something there's something um helpful a lot of affective scientists have theorized about like there is something helpful about sort of like marching yourself through emotional scenarios things that elicit emotions but with that bubble of safety of like i know this doesn't actually impact me i know this is all going to be over in two and a half hours and so there's something about allowing yourself to go on that journal journey and like and and Make sure all systems go that you're responding to things appropriately, but it won't actually have a long-term impact on your life. And I think that's part of the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, and uh, it's
2: funny we we started with uh, in our discussions about audience feedback. And what I have realized over the course of our conversations that I care a lot, I care more in some ways about the audience experience of watching and coexisting with the live show than I do about the feedback. And partly um, what's difficult about giving feedback as an audience member is uh, the the play is now, it's not that it's static, right? But I'm always curious as being both an audience member and an actor when my feedback as audience is actually Useful and generative, right? In the are way that are you talking
0: about feedback in terms of live, like clapping and gasping and crying? Like I think I'm more thinking about verbal feedback, okay, like afterwards. Gi- giving, giving yeah. No. Do you want to talk
2: about the yeah the, the live? Yeah. As it's happening feedback, yeah.
0: I mean, I think there's there's there are a few reasons I think that, um, that live theater is going to persist, even as a lot of other professions and entertainment systems um, sort of uh, become automated and digitized. And one of them is I think there is something really special about having a shared experience. So let's first talk about the audience experience just from the audience side of the proscenium, mm-hmm. right? So the fact that you are experiencing it with other people, you're not in an isolation booth, can be really impactful. So there's a lot of psychological studies. I've referenced them before that show audience effects that people behave differently when other people are around versus when they're alone. Right. And so a lot of people's emotional reactions to things become exaggerated, especially in Western cultures. So if they find something scary, they'll gasp a little louder. If they find something funny, they'll laugh uh, a little louder. They're more likely to laugh at all. And so PR people know this, right? And so there's, a known practice of what's called packing the house yeah. when critics are there yeah. so that you have more people around so that it is a, a full experience. A it makes the show seem popular and in demand, right? right, right. But it also creates more uh, 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 of the, of the, what's the word I'm looking for? It just creates higher levels of, of, of audience reactions yeah. to the play. Then there's that second level of the interaction between the actors on the stage and the audience, right? That when you you say a line and the entire audience gasps or the entire yeah. audience laughs not only does that introduce technical challenges like when do you start speaking and so people can hear you if there's a rolling you know a cloud of laughter but there's also this really like enjoyable transaction and some material allows for a little bit of play and a little yeah. bit of a little bit of, of you know uh, what's the word like uh, uh, the actors on stage reacting to the audience so that one character in the play that goes wrong who like figures out that the audience is oh, responding to God. him and then he he just plays to it. Yeah. It's one of the strengths of that play. Then yeah. the
2: when the director comes on as the detective oh and my says, God. The ledger. Where's the ledger? That is the funniest moment th- I in the think show. I one think. of the most brilliant parts of that play yeah. is how much they engage the audience without the audience having to get ever get out of their seats. Yeah. Right. Is is really smart theater making. Yeah. Yeah. Um I I, <laughs> I make a lot of noise in an audience. Like I tend yeah. to laugh a lot and I comment and I and I've heard that my students like it, but I also <laughs> Think maybe it's too much but I wonder if it's me I think it's authentic or it could be me um just like yay actors yeah. like
0: I'm supporting you I'm just gonna you, be a little extra loud as an audience member do you give face do you find yourself like making facial expressions as though yes. the actors can see you yeah. I do too when I was in college I actually had a professor who got to me and like it was like you're the one who's always so responsive to what yeah. I'm saying because I'm like nodding and smiling yeah, and laughing." again my
2: husband (laughs) I asked him hey we're gonna you know we're gonna talk about audience feedback in this particular episode and he said okay some people might disagree with me but I think there are three ways to engage an audience you can engage with ideas with plot or story or you can um, they can emotionally attach themselves to characters that's probably simplified but I think it's really useful as a kind of practical like you could do it this way this way this way and the best plays do it all three ways Um, every
0: single stopper play I can think of does all three does all
2: three so so I, you know, I remember seeing a show at the Denver Center with my husband, and he loved it because it was intellectually stimulating. It wasn't yeah. the plot wasn't that interesting. The characters, I didn't really attach myself to them emotionally. Um, but he was like that satisfied me. Yeah. Um, I remember a, a high school friend of mine talking about seeing the original Angels in America as a high school student mm. on Broadway mm. and the experience of audience members who didn't even know each other holding each other across the aisles and crying together oh. because it was impacting them I mean that's a play where you have really interesting ideas you have a very compelling story on a bunch of diff- from a bunch of different character perspectives and you attach to these characters yeah. because of how well they're written
0: and that shared experience can be really really powerful yeah. and actually there's are some like a little bit more esoteric. Theories of the purpose of art more generally, and some of them are really focused on music. And uh, some of the people who who think about the purpose of art and music in society is to create these really powerful parallel experiences. To say to have a whole group of people all experience the same rise and fall of something at the same time—that's mm. mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and that's what that's one of the things art can do.
2: Mm-hmm. And I I think this idea, this Aristotelian idea of catharsis, uh, of somehow by watching something play out that emotionally you can connect to or relate to, whether it has to do about loss or love or achievement or humiliation, that there's a, I guess you would call it a purging, right? But but by you safely in the comfort of your seat... um, experiencing similar emotions to to the characters in the story, it then kind of cleans you out and you feel better. Like it's a healthy, it's an emotionally, mentally healthy process to watch this very relatable. Sure. To practice the empathy of that.
0: Are we good on audience? Did you have anything else you want to say?
2: I think the one, one more thing I want to say, uh, And I sort of feel vulnerable saying it because I don't think there's a right answer is the kind of best practice for an audience member giving feedback to someone who's just performed. Oh, yeah. I've had this conversation with Katir, I've had it with many of my actor friends. It's really hard. And and one could argue, uh, you know, I I sort of have come to the point where I either (laughs) want to just say good work. Like, so let's just go yeah. get a drink, or can we talk for like two hours about what I just witnessed? Yeah. Because what just happened was so—if it's a good piece—was complicated. A lot happened, yeah. you know. Um, and and I have had moments both when I've received feedback that was not intended unkindly. That you hear it unkindly because it's so narrow. It's like yeah. one thought, and I think I just did two hundred things. Yeah. Um, and then I also have done that. I I said to my friend. Which was intended as a compliment, and thankfully he took it as a compliment. I said something like, I hated your character so much, because he was playing a, a sort of uh, uh, someone of questionable moral character. Yeah. And I was, I was, the subtext was, You were very successful. And thankfully he heard that, but I could totally understand yeah. someone taking that the wrong way. So I just struggle with that interaction and don't know how to give advice about kind yeah. of the best way to do it.
0: I think it's, I mean, again, to quote from friends, you can always go, (laughs) you were in a play. (laughs) Yeah, I mean,
2: but. And I actually think good work works both when you think it was good and when you didn't think it was
0: good. I mean, it is really (laughs) tricky. I think, I wonder if this is something that, that performers stress about more than others and maybe as a performer if you are you value more what other performers say to you I mean I've had a lot of like distant relatives say random things to me about plays my dad famously uh, you know and for my senior capstone uh, immediately commented on the fit of the costumes in a flattering way you know and then on another another play he saw me and his first piece of feedback was well this is weird (laughs) thanks dad but uh i but i don't care that much because like his artistic opinion doesn't there are other ways in which my father's opinion may matter quite a bit not that one so um you know but i think and and it's it's been tricky for me i found out uh a while ago that there's like a code and that um and maybe this is specific to musicals but like a bunch of my friends who do musicals were telling me that if you say that looked like fun that that's, like, a burn. Like, that's the equivalent uh, if you were going to play. But I've always thought that's a really high... Because, like, when I'm in a musical, unless it's a really serious, dramatic musical, like I usually want to be having fun. And so yeah. if someone says, like, oh, I could tell how much fun you were yeah. having up there, that's a compliment. Yeah, like, no,
2: there's pleasure. There we all be, had fun. There should be pleasure in your performance. Yeah. Like, even if you're King Lear, sad about the death of your daughter, there is... It's fun is not quite right, but you are engaged. Sure. Yeah, there's, there is pleasure is the best word I can think of. You are enjoying the process of finding the words to share this moment with the audience. Yeah. So I take it as a compliment. Well, thanks.
0: I think there's 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 so many layers. Like when you're a performer and you're watching a performance, like sometimes there's a layer of like you auditioned for that show and you didn't get it, or inevitably there's sometimes like even if you didn't audition, like do you see yourself in that play? Right. I, I think not to stereotype actors too much, but I do think that actors tend to center themselves, you know, in the experience and then sure. want to, you know, want to convey that to someone else and like that, like, you know, you're not interested in which role I saw myself in in your play. Right. Right. <laughs> but that's one of the first things I want to tell you. Sure. Of
2: yes. Yeah. No, no, no. Yes. In both good and bad ways, actors are. You know, ego-focused. A little bit. Let's right now just briefly talk about the sort of best practice for an actor to receive feedback. Um, I have a list here. I think it's important to listen, to take it in. I think some actors, um, I think we're all guilty of maybe not practicing that. Like we, yeah. we just hear it, but we don't actually hear it. And a good director will be deliberate and thoughtful and, and sensitive and empathic in the way that they convey it to you. So you owe it to them and to the process to also take the responsibility to hold up your half of the bargain, which is to actually uh, hear it. And, and then I think the goal, and then to ask questions if it's not clear. Sure. And I think the goal is to translate that thing that you've been given into something doable. So sometimes a director struggles, all directors, good directors, struggle to find, (sighs) to say what they want to say in a way that the actor can then do something. They can employ it. So I think it's helpful for an actor to sort of practice translating. You were really sad in that scene and I'd like to see the character cheer up. Right. So they're talking emotionally at this yeah. particular moment when that person says something. And you go, okay, but playing emotion is just general. So how do I translate yeah. that? Right. So I have to that- go back and listen to season one. <laughs> <laughs> so at that moment, I might translate, okay, I'm supposed to be happier there into an action, into a yeah. verb. Or I might think about hearing what the other character actor says in a different way. I might take it in in a different way or I might physically adjust what I'm doing. Right. Or I might even think vocally, I'm going to add more brightness, right. Or I'm going to speed up. I think actioning in some ways is, is arguably the best, but any of these is, is a way to make that adjustment. You're always returning to the analysis, right. To your objective and actioning and all of that work. Um, I think also, um, even if you hear it in a negative way or maybe the director is giving you a little shade to receive it graciously and appreciative yeah. and respectfully which is really how the director should also be treating you
0: I mean there there's an etiquette rule of thumb here right like you're always supposed to th- say thank you after a note Unless yeah. you have a clarifying question
2: uh, I think yes I think yeah. that's a uh, rule of thumb is yeah. is is excellent um, this idea of closing the conversation, of sort of making it clear that you have received the yeah. feedback, I think is valuable. I think efficiency is valuable when you can do it. There are certain conversations that take time. Yeah, And I think um, that this idea, which Kateri mentioned last season of growth mindset versus fixed mindset, Absolutely. like you're in there, you are delivering the goods as much as you can, but you are aware that there is always room for improvement and for growth. Right.
0: And I think that you know, taking into account the the aspects of distance in this uh, that we've gone through, recognizing having the humility to recognize that it's the director's role to give you information that you can't perceive from your perspective. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's not just they are the almighty decider of what's good and bad and you're not doing this well enough. It's they see something you can't (gasps) see. Yeah, I think
2: that's really really helpful because I think actors tend to give um, sometimes too much power too much status to the director and think they are all knowing when actually some of my favorite, you know, Anne Bogart's one of my favorite directors and she just tries to empower the room as much as possible and is encouraging actors and also like opera singers who I think are even quieter and just (laughs) have less status in a rehearsal room sometimes than actors do to to speak up. Um, The final thing I want to say is status is important. So when, if you as an actor have had lots of experience or you know the, you have a good relationship with the director, um, those are ideal situations because you get to have that conversation. You are not just going, you know, yes ma'am, yes sir, I'll do what you ask, right? But you are you realize that you are equal to the director in many ways. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily want to take up a ton of their time, (laughs) but it's okay to ask them a question to clarify what they want.
0: Yeah. And I think as you were hinting at this job of the director to create a safe and empowering space, that's where it comes back to benefit you is when you're giving notes. If All of the actors trust that you're a collaborator and that you're working together because you have the same goal, which is a a beautiful telling of the story that you're all invested in. That leads to a very different back and forth taking notes than one where, yes. you know, you're feeling competitive with the other actors or you just feel you feel like you're a better actor than the director is giving you credit for. Yeah. So how dare they tell you to do something differently. And
2: when the director does that, I mean, there is a little bit of, of director encouraging feedback really just to empower actors knowing yeah. that they were not going to take all the feedback. But also director is one brain. They yeah. will take some of your feedback. Yeah. You will have thoughts, very specific thoughts about character or moments that they maybe have not thought all the way through. Yeah. The very final thing is, is again, Anne Bogart, director. She goes, I, she's in an, an interview on the American Theater Wing, and she says something like, when a colleague, like a d- designer, actor, or you know, coworker, gives me feedback and I feel hot inside, like I get kind of upset or riled up, she goes, I know they're right. Oh. Like, like when someone gives you feedback and you you blush and you what feel an a little hot. What an amazing
0: reappraisal.
2: And you get vulnerable. Oh. She's like, oh, that's because they actually thought about it in a better way or at least a new way. And I haven't thought about that way. And often that's right. And so that ability, even as, both as actor and director, I think to be vulnerable and realize yes. that sometimes. It happened to me in a meeting recently where a colleague um, corrected me lovingly and I was like, Oh that and my face got red because yeah. I like I just went off about something and actually he's right.
0: <laughs> yeah. So. Um So I love this idea of keeping in mind that the director isn't all-knowing and the director isn't the final authority on what is good or bad because even though not everybody thinks of a director that way, a lot (laughs) of people think of theater critics that way, right? So theater critics typically are uh, writing for some sort of uh, journalistic publication. Um, You know, twenty-five years ago might have all been print newspapers and then drifted into online, and now there are a lot of blogger critics, um, or t- Twitter critics, <laughs> um, twi- twittics. twittics, um, nice. probably, I probably didn't coin that phrase, but, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, um, I think, I think it's really interesting to think about the role that a theater critic plays because they don't directly give feedback as uh, for the purpose of making a production better, but they make their experience... In, in some ways, they're just an elevated audience member. They're just an audience member with a megaphone, right? Like, they're an audience member who's able to communicate what they experienced to a broader audience than, than most other audience members. Um, So I think in terms of maybe one of the things, we'll save most of our discussion of of what it's like to be in that role for our interview with John Moore coming up next. John Moore. Yes. The John Moore. Yeah. I think one really cool thing about the changing landscape of criticism in the past several decades is that I do think it's become a little bit more democratized. I think that that yeah. there are more and more, you know, websites that ask for, there are actually some, you know, websites like Gold Star comes to mind where you can get discount tickets, but you can also like leave, you know, your mm-hmm. experience to, to advise other audience members to come see the show or not. Um, and so I think the idea that multiple people have different responses to a show is a little bit more palatable than it used to be when one or two people would just deem a show good or bad.
2: Yeah,
0: Um, And this is one of the things. So years and years ago, my husband, David, and I ran a website in town called He Said, She Said Critiques. um, And it wasn't really about differently gendered perspectives. But the point of it was all of our reviews were a back and forth. It was a he said paragraph, she said paragraph, he said, she said. It was
2: deliberative.
0: It was deliberative and it was conversational. And we sometimes over the course of a review would persuade the other one of something. And it was meant to model the conversation we would have in the car driving back from a show where he would say, oh, my gosh, this one one was amazing. I'd be like, oh, I thought that was the wrong choice in that moment, you know, or vice versa. And so it was meant to display that there is no one singular response to a piece of art it's a back and forth and that really good art inspires a really awesome conversation yes. and maybe even a conversation yes. that is heated yeah. and not one that's just characterized by that moment was, was gr- great. wonderful. Oh, yeah. I thought so too. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I agree.
2: Yeah. We're really excited for, uh, John Moore's visit. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much. We are so excited to welcome to our podcast, John Moore. Thank you so much, John, for being here. Thank you for having me. John Moore was named one of the 12 most influential theater critics in the United States by American Theater Magazine in 2011. When he took the job at the Denver Post in 2001, he set out to create a new model for how daily newspapers might cover theater in the digital era. He wrote more than 3,000 theater reviews, feature stories, columns, and breaking news stories, winning numerous local and national awards. But it was his online innovations, including video podcasts, blogs, script samples, photo galleries, and more, that prompted the Chicago Tribune to suggest that the Denver Post's multimedia theater coverage was the best in the nation. John next took a groundbreaking position as the Denver Center for the Performing Arts Senior Arts Journalist where he manages a website covering theater and other cultural disciplines as a shared resource for the entire Colorado theater community. He is also the founder of the Denver Actors Fund, a nonprofit that has distributed more than $340,000 to local theater artists in medical need. For his work in journalism and in the community, John has won additional awards commending his service and his continued coverage of theater in Colorado. And before covering theater, he was a deputy sports editor at multiple news organizations with national profiles. Again, we are thrilled to have him.
1: Thank you guys for having me.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're so... We're, you have done so many things um, in, in the theater community in, in theater broadly and, and in the, the Denver and Colorado theater community so the first question we have for you is can you explain how you identify your role in the theater community in Colorado right now
1: Well, we're certainly in a new era now with the continuing diminishment of arts coverage by mainstream media sources. And so the Denver Center was really on the forefront in 2012 by realizing that um, with the coverage diminishing uh, through places like the Denver Post, that they still had stories to tell, but they didn't necessarily have the storyteller. And so they had the idea to bring me in and to create a, a media outlet that would serve as a shared resource for the whole theater community, telling stories, uh, doing interviews. A uh, rising tide floats all boats. So mm-hmm. writing about other disciplines of the theater companies as well. And so I think of myself as an advocacy journalist. Um, I, I still write profiles and news stories. Uh, I just don't do reviews anymore. That would be problematic under this, uh, under this model. So, um, yeah, I'm out there to just let as many people know about all the good work that the Colorado theater community is doing statewide.
2: Wonderful. I think as we were thinking about what questions we want to ask you, a lot of them will focus on uh, being a critic, but please, if you'd rather respond in a different way (laughs) as as sort of advocacy (laughs) journalist or otherwise, please do so.
1: There are those who will always think of me as a theater critic, (laughs) even though I have not written a review since 2011. Wow. All right.
2: Uh, Next question. What do you believe are the main responsibilities of a theater critic? Um, Similarly, how would you describe your role in the theater community when you served as a critic?
1: I think the best service that a critic can do is to introduce the issues of a play to a readership who may not know that the play exists so that they can decide for themselves whether or not they want to actually go and see the play. I I always said when I was at the Denver Post that even though I was a, a, a journalist, I felt like what I was doing was very parallel to what the marketing departments in uh, every theater company did because the readership of the Denver Post was the same as the potential audience for every theater company in the state. And so if I had a big takeout on a Sunday writing about a certain show or interviewing a playwright about the issues of that play, my goal is not necessarily to sell tickets, but if I did an effective job for the readers of the Denver Post by writing a a compelling story and somebody got to the end of that story and said, you know, I I think I want to go see that play. Then I will have done my job. But in, and in the ecology of the theater community, there really is a place for criticism and theater journalism to help you get the word out about your plays. And that's why I always was surprised about how antagonistic it often was Mm. when I always felt like we were, we were performing a service, even if I had to write a tough review I felt like I was performing a service for a theater company. Because if you imagine it, if you go soft and you write a review about a play and you're and you're thinking, this really isn't up to their standards, but I just don't want to be the bad guy today. And then a reader follows your advice and then goes to see the play and they think, well, if this is what this guy thinks is good theater, then he's not of any use to me. right? And they probably aren't going to take your opinion very seriously in the future. And they probably aren't going to buy another ticket to go see that theater. So I, I think that there's... That there's a place, it's an often misunderstood place, yeah. uh, for the critic to um, really be a vital messenger to the rest of the theater company. I think actually now that the mainstream media has diminished so much, Rocky Mountain News has gone away and The Post is is um, doesn't have any full-time entertainment writers anymore. So I think people are now r- really realizing what the Denver Center was looking at back in 2012 is what do we do now?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd think that you know you'd think that performers would be um you said that sometimes things get a little, got a little bit antagonistic between you and, and the theater companies. And you'd think that if you, your view of criticism was like, all oh, this guy's just always busting on us, that there would be a relief, right? Mm-hmm. That there isn't anyone sort of serving in that full-time role, but I've only heard the reverse. I've only heard yeah. a lot of people say, it's really a shame. It's really changed the sort of landscape of the theater community, that there isn't anyone serving in that, in that role anymore.
1: No matter how many stories I wrote, there's nothing like a review. And, and uh, there were, theater companies have told me all the time that they didn't even care if it was a harsh review because the review would have a photo with it. (laughs) All photos are good photos. All photos photos are good (laughs) photos and the photos photos would sell tickets no matter what. That's why I always encourage theater companies to really Invest what little resources they have in production photography mm-hmm. because it can make such a huge difference. When I worked at the oh. post, the, the my editor was often more interested in what art I was turning in mm-hmm. with my review than what mm-hmm. the review itself mm-hmm. said. Mm-hmm. And if a company had a really compelling photo, it might end up on the front page yeah. because the because the art um, mattered. So yeah, I think there was some short sightedness about mm-hmm. the whole concept of of. Uh, of negative reviews being you know having killed a production I have all kinds of of anecdotal data I could tell you about I think that um, readers whenever I would write in advance it would I would hear anecdotally that they would sell a certain amount of tickets sure but but nothing nothing says like a review so everybody wants to get their their shows reviewed because that's what people respond to but there aren't any full-time theater reviewers in Colorado anymore and there probably never will be wow
2: You talked about misconceptions. Are are there misconceptions of theater critics that you'd like to take a moment to
0: clear up?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, doctor.
0: (laughs) So are they they painted green and trying to steal Christmas the entire time, or only...
1: I will say that theater critics are not unlike doctors and lawyers and professional athletes in that they're an entire subset Mm -hmm. of society themselves. And within those classes of people. There are people who are in it for the right reasons. Mm. There are people who have ethics and there are people who aren't. There are people who um, are are nefarious and others who are moralistic. And I think there are good theater critics and bad theater critics. I'm thinking
2: about how subjective the, rec- the receipt, the receiving of criticism can be. That sometimes... Uh, a critique can be uh, intended neutrally or even positively and sometimes the vulnerable actor or director can That's receive right. it negatively. Right. It's, it's reminding me of a, Hilton Knowles, the critic of The New Yorker wrote a review of Young Jean Lee's play, I think it's called Straight White Man or White Is Yeah, yeah, White yeah, yeah, that was on Broadway and everyone was really excited that she was on Broadway and before I read Hilton Knowles' review and he's a beautiful writer, I saw on Facebook that one of my friends was really really angry about his review because it ended mm-hmm. up being critical of the piece. And she was really angry that he she felt like he was not allowing young Jean Lee to like play with the big boys to like just allowing her to be on Broadway. And then I finally read his review and it was actually in many ways very loving and very loving is the wrong word, very positive about her work generally and how he tends to admire all of her work. He just was really struggling to find um the things he really enjoyed about this particular piece, and I thought, "Wow, I read this so differently from this other reader, both of whom, you know, love this particular playwright's work." And right. I'm just thinking, there must be things where you, perhaps, intended um, to say something, and it is—it's probably misinterpreted, right?
1: Absolutely. And there are lessons that you learn as you go along Mm -hmm. as a critic. I know that I did where I would write a draft of my review and I would submit it and then be on to the next. And then that exact same thing that you said, sometimes I I thought I might have been being funny in a place like this and it was not interpreted as being funny at all. Um, Very early on in my uh, reviewing career, I made, uh, well, it was a teachable moment. <laughs> <where> <laughs> I I wrote a, a review. Well, I wrote a review about a play that was going on in Boulder. Where and and I have to preface this by saying that when I, I came from us from a. Th- I've had a, a lifetime in theater, but I came from a sports journalism background. And yeah. one of the things that I tried to do when I became a theater critic was to invoke a little bit of levity into it and to have people realize that this is not life and death. So if I could make people, the readers, smile at least once during a review, even if it was a play that was terribly you know, um, serious, I thought I had done my job because... Because also part of your challenge as a theater writer is to invite non-theater readers mm. into reading what you're writing about. Right. That's why it's important to remember if you who you re, who you're writing for there was one female character who was exasperated throughout the entire play and she was kind of waving her hands in front of her like this but she also was an actor who didn't feel comfortable looking at her her co-star in the eyes and so she was always looking over his head like she was looking into the rafters and it was really distracting for me but I had this sort of What I thought was a funny thought in my head where I thought that she kind of looks like she's standing below a burning building and waiting for somebody to toss the baby down. And I was like, when is that baby coming down? And I thought that was so funny. Um, But and I and I and I and I put that in my review. Grant, this is in my first year as as a critic. And I thought people go, oh, aren't you witty? Um, right. but I, but it but it ended up hurting the i hurt somebody's feelings mm-hmm. and that's not why I got in this for and i actually got a call from Ross Haley who at the time was running Boulder's Dinner Theater that was not the theater but he banned me for 6 months from wow. from Boulder's Dinner Theater and it, and i said but Ross it wasn't even your play and he just said if you're capable of being that vicious to, to another artist i don't even want to give you the chance to to do that to one of mine wow. and i just thought that was the greatest lesson that anybody could have ever taught me because i never got in this to be the bad guy. Mm -hmm. And I just realized words matter. And from that point on, every review that I wrote until the day I left, I would write the review, I would file it, I would walk away, I would sleep on it, I would do whatever the deadline allowed, and then I would come back and I would read it again through the perspective of the person who's Mm. maybe in the show. So you're
0: taking advantage of the temporal perspective of with some time, how does this look to me, as well as the taking someone else's perspective. Like, I wrote this from... My perspective And any writer always engages some sort of social distance when they right. invoke a different audience member, unless people right. write for themselves, which Absolutely. very few people do. Um, yeah. for, people from do. that point
1: on, I can't tell you how many times I rewrote mm. paragraphs wow. thinking, oh, this is my weird sense of humor. Nobody's going to get this, yeah. or this will be misinterpreted. So I took that responsibility very seriously. I got way more hate mail for a three-and-a-half-star review out mm. of four than I did for a two-star review or less. And my theory mm. about that is that... When you give something a two-star review, the people who are in it know it. They kind of hope that they fool you and that you go, give them a pass, and that they might do a little bit better. But if your two stars are below, people pretty much kind of know and that it's gonna, that it's coming, and they don't really react uh-huh. as such. But when you give somebody a three and a half star review, that's half a step away mm-hmm. from the best that it can be. And I can't tell you how many times I dealt with angry creative people who were like why do you have to be so tough like why can't you just give yourself over to it and I say well you know I do cover the entire state I I I I go to see 150 160 shows a year if every you can't give out four stars that like they're like they're candy because to the readers after a while four stars isn't gonna mean anything Mm -hmm. and I and I and it's another point to keep in mind is that while I'm was hyper aware of how those reviews might be read by the creative teams. I tried to keep in mind too, that I am not writing reviews for the edification of the artistic team Mm -hmm. for their, just as some sort of confirmation that they really nailed it. It's great if that serves that purpose, but my readership is the readership of the Denver Post that's paying money to get your paper to make so that they can read you and they can make very tough economic yeah, decisions. Yeah. If you're a young parent and you love theater and you can only go once or twice a year and you have to really pick and choose what to go see, you need a critic who's discerning, who's going to be able to say, you know what, this is the thing that you can't miss. Yeah. So there's a service actually in being yeah. tough.
0: Right. Right. And right. I think that this is consistent with two different things from psychology. One is that people's emotional responses to things are always scaled based on their expectation and also Mm -hmm. what the range is, right? And so actually the usual usual example of the three and a half star anger is the fact that silver medalists at the Olympics are usually far more disappointed than the bronze medalists. Mm. So true. Because the bronze medalists made it on the podium, right? The silver medalists are this far from gold, right? That's
1: such an appropriate comparison. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then developmentally, I think there's, um, you know, uh, we've talked... Previously about growth mindset and and how a lot of um, educators and um, we've, Anne and I have talked about how when you're, when you're nurturing someone's artistic process to have a growth mindset, to not use essentialized statements like you're bad at this, you know, but here's how this can improve in the future. And a lot of times that gets misinterpreted as give everybody a medal for um, participating. Right. But growth mindset isn't actually about rewarding people regardless of their effort. Right. It's about attributing success to effort when you n- notice success. So it's not about right. saying, you tried so hard, here's a four-star review. It's about saying, this company did four-star work, and dang, they've been working hard at it.
1: That's that's why I think the biggest gap in our theater education programs, especially at colleges, is that we're, we're graduating students with bachelor's degrees and, and MFAs in the practicing of the theater arts, but Never are they really trained up how to deal with criticism. Mm. I've always felt like like schools like UNC or or UCCS or here at DU should always have a master class or uh, of some kind in taking feedback, not necessarily from within, because taking feedback from a professor is you know is like taking it from your mother or father, you know, there's a protectiveness around mm-hmm. there. You're a part mm-hmm. of the family. And then suddenly you throw them out into the world. And for the first time they really um, face outside mm-hmm. criticism. It can be devastating mm-hmm. for some of these young graduates. And I always, I often wondered why that's not more of a priority to, to teach people to keep it into perspective and yeah. to realize it's just one person's opinion.
0: Have you ever had a production who actually responded to a review of yours, who like made a change based on
1: uh there've been a, there've been a couple um <laughs> and sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's wonderful because uh in the scary time for me was when there was one actor who called me up after I had called him out for a certain choice he had made on a certain play. And he said, Mr. Moore, I just want to thank you so much for your review because you hit on exactly the thing that I've been fighting with my director about. And your comment (gasps) Um, confirms that I was right all along and I'm going to change my performance. (laughs) And I said, listen, no, no, I cannot be (laughs) responsible. You're, you're open. You, you've got actors who are depending on you to do things the way your director expected you to do them. Um, I have no idea whether that led to anything or not. But my positive uh, comparison to that is when the Broadway production of, of Brooklyn, the musical, was being workshopped, it was workshopped, of all places, at the Denver Civic Theater, which is now Teatro. And there was a big New York team. Jeff Calhoun is a big deal, the director of that show. And Karen, Karen Olivo, Karen Olivo, I think, maybe. I, I never know, need to know how to pronounce people's names, I only have to know how to spell them. Um, <laughs> But it was a big, it was a big time thing. It was a very big event in Denver theater, and you write a review very differently for a developing musical because when it, before a play has been licensed or published or, or set out into the world, it still it still can be changed. Mm-hmm. And I loved when places when pieces like The Little Mermaid came to Denver, yeah, uh, because you know that's the one time when the eyes of the theater world are looking at your reviews, and so is the creative team because they haven't locked it down yet. And I looked at it like, I wrote my review like, you know what, if I were on this team, these are the things I would look at that could, could maybe be improved or, or to be looked at with a, a fresher eye. And, and I wrote it very positive. We made the exact same points, but I wrote mine in a very constructive way and the day my review came out, Jeff Calhoun, again, makes me nervous. Big deal in the Broadway world. He said, what are you doing right now? And I said, well, I'm working on a story, but it's not due till tomorrow. And he goes, come have lunch with me. Uh-huh. And he was sitting at El Noa Noah across the street from the Civic Theater. And I went over there, and we sat down. And he had my review, the print version of my review, with highlight, parts of it highlighted. Uh-huh. And he had written some little notes. And he was just saying, I want to know more about what, you're talking, what you were talking about right there. Beautiful. And That's we amazing. sat there for five hours <gasps> yeah. and, and, he later on sent me a note and said, you know what, the whole, we've changed the entire opening number of the show based on what you told that's me. That's the wow. thing. That's
2: the goal, yeah, right? That's, that's the, the ideal, that, the, that you phrase the feedback in a way that can be heard and the person who's receiving it can yeah. hear it. Right. Um, I a similar question, uh, the Denver Center does this fabulous new play summit where, what, four or so plays, playwrights come in, they have these plays that are not necessarily done. And I know you're around and taking photos and writing about this event. Are there examples of playwrights? Receiving the feedback that they're getting in that room from the director and the actors in a positive way, and like ripping apart the play and putting it back together, and at the end of the week or two weeks, just having a a better product.
1: Yes, and a a perfect example is Bonnie Metzger's play, uh, You Lost Me, which was just recently named to be fully produced next year. She's a badass. Can I say badass? Yeah, you can swear, swear, swear. She's swear. badass. And she she came in here with a play that she's she's had different versions of since two thousand twelve. She wrote mm-hmm. it was her thesis project. But she's a completely open book. Now that it, we're really talking about producing it, she was like, I want to play in the sandbox. Mm-hmm. And so she came with a she, she wrote a completely different final she said sixty pages for of uh, for for the first weekend of the summit. Just because she wanted to see how people responded to it. And what she learned from that was she largely ha- had more confidence in the version that she wrote in 2012. Oh,
2: wow. And so
1: for the second weekend, they went back into the room, mm. and she just threw out the 60 pages that, sh- that the first weekend of Audience did. And she brought back, at, while she was updating and rewriting, um, but a, a, a very different ending very different direction that the play goes in in the, second, uh, in the second weekend and the second weekend went so well that they that the Denver Center yeah. has put it on their season next year and but the benefit too now is that she now has a year to really live with the feedback she got from the summit to see what the next generation mm. of the play is but then there's a play like American Mariachi which is now being produced all over the country that was given two years between the summit uh, and production, and it really was to the benefit of the playwright because he was an open book as well. Mm. Yeah. and it was a very different play that was produced at the Denver Center than was presented at the summit. and he was the he was the better for it, his play mm-hmm. was the better for it, and it'll probably be produced you know in perpetuity now because he was open to change. Well, oh, what's his name? Jose Cruz Gonzalez. Cool,
2: thank you.
0: I think that that is such a helpful distinction between the, the the fact that for most productions, the critics' voice is too late to actually influence the ongoing and really shouldn't influence. Shouldn't right. unfreeze a play, but as new work gets developed, yeah. that there is a kind of critical window there.
1: As part of my job of being informed about what was going on in the American theater, The Post would send me to New York every year and I would go to Broadway and off-Broadway, and, and eventually these plays are going to be produced in Denver. And so... Oftentimes, I might be the only person sitting in a in a regional premiere going you think knowing that I've already seen it the way the creators had in mind and I'm not a snob in any way shape or form about money. I don't believe that you need to have you know hundreds of thousands of dollars in production values to make a show work but you you're when you saw it on Broadway or off Broadway you saw it the way the as close to what the creator had in mind. But there are all kinds of people who would write in and say, why are you you always holding things to a New York standard? Mm. And I'd say, I'm not holding it to a New York standard, but you can't can't unlearn what you've learned. It's interesting, when I go to see plays that I didn't get to see in New York, Mm -hmm. I don't have that frame of reference. So it never becomes an issue. It all just becomes like, what did they do? And sometimes what they did is incredibly charming and 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 it works on a great level and then i'll have people write in and say well i saw it on broadway and they totally fooled you because that was a piece of crap (laughs) so either way either either way there's some oversight that's gonna come back and get you on that i will never not be a critic in my head Mm -hmm. i'm still going to see three or four plays a week because it's because that is my job as as the only full-time salaried theater journalist still operating in Denver, as somebody who maintains uh, my theater coverage, uh, which I suppose I should say is at org that you can find it at, mm-hmm. um, but... <clears throat> When I go see a play, my mind is still going through and saying, "Oh, I, I, they're they're sleepwalking through this or uh-huh. this that," and then I walk out and I into the world and I and I know when I open up my Facebook, there's just it, there's just it's being flooded with platitudes and congratulations, and I think that's great because we that's a product of the fact that we we are in one of the most supportive and uh, yeah. theater mm-hmm. communities a, around. But believe me, there's plenty of times when I sit there and I say, "I'm glad that." the only person who has to know what I'm thinking right now is me Yeah, Mm -hmm. because it just stays right in my head. I don't, I don't have to, I don't have to type it out and subject myself (laughs) to the people going, Oh, there's the curmudgeon. who has got to, he's got to rain down it. But I don't, I, I believe the critics serve such an essential part in the ecology of the making of art, and I think that's becoming more and more of a gap, and it will be it will continue to become more of a gap in this new world where we're there just is not a model that's going to sustain a full-time salaried theater journalist in this community again. I just don't see it happening.
2: <sighs> Thank you. It's too bad. I have one more question. Sure. Yeah. Uh, can you speak to one or two of your favorite pieces that you've written, whether they're review or other type of journalism. And by favorite I think I mean I wonder if you discovered something about yourself or how you assess theater in the process of writing it or you changed. Some favorite in terms of you had a very satisfying experience in the act of writing the piece.
1: Um, I'll go general and then specific. My general comment to that is that one of the greatest privileges that I have as a theater journalist going on two decades now in the local theater community is writing obituaries when uh, a member of our community passes away and there is that shock and sadness that sets in um, people are lost in their grief but I as a journalist I have a, a role to play at that point and that is to do my job which is to try to write a story that is is going to not only impart the news but is going to tell the story of this person's life in a way that is going to be a bit of a balm for the readership when when it goes out on Facebook or, or when people are lost in their sadness and they don't know what to do with it I when I have a story out there that tells the person's life I've been told over and over again that that's the most meaningful journalism that I will have ever written I hope, I know this to be true the life tributes that I've written are going to outlast any review that I ever mm-hmm. wrote in my life at least I, I hope so but to give you an idea of a specific, it's never going to be a review. The answer to that question is never going hmm. to be a review unless it's a four-star review mm-hmm. that, where you get to help tell the world about something really wonderful that's happening. But I guess my, my, my go-to answer to that question would be a story that I wrote about Martin Moran uh, when he was coming. When, he was a kid from Denver who uh, was a successful Broadway actor, and he developed a one-man show called The Tricky Part. Uh, in New York City, that detailed his experiences as a teenager, um, not only being sexually be abused at a Catholic retreat called uh, Camp Saint Malo, but how it led to this strange love affair with his abuser that lasted over the course of of more than four years, but um, of course ended um, in. A lot of psychological damage and suicide attempts, and and it really almost cost him his life. And in order to figure out a way to 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 wrestle with the tricky part of that story, that there was love in it, he wrote a play that has since led to a book and a sequel, and it's been produced. Uh, Curious Theater um, produced it and its a sequel here in Denver. And when I heard about the story. I went to New York and I met with Martin Moran. It was at a time when he was in previous for his very first off Broadway production, and um, he wasn't getting a whole lot of attention. It's Just another one man play in New York City. And when I told him that this was of news value to the people in Denver because this is a this was not I should be very clear a member of the church. It was a, a staff member mm-hmm. at the at the camp. Um, but this was a person who was never prosecuted for his crimes. I said, "Martin, there's an art- artistic story here. There's a there's a news story here," and the Denver Post thought it was an important enough story that they made it the lead story on the on a on a Sunday edition on the front page of the paper and took up two pages inside. Wow. And a number of people came forward after that story and and told their stories of, of Camp St. Malo as well with uh, involving mm-hmm. the same person. But the most important thing, as far as I'm concerned, is that. Uh, that Martin's producer, Seth Barish, when he got a hold of the physical copy of the Denver Post and saw the way that it was presented, he marched down to the New York Times and asked to see Ben Brantley, the main theater critic at the, at the Times, and, and, he, and he allowed him to come in, and he produced the physical edition of the Denver Post, and he, they said, this is how big of a deal this play is in, in Denver, Um, Maybe you should pay attention to it. Wow! And because of that, he's as he tells the story, Ben Brantley was not planning to see that play, but after he read the story, he did, and his review was uh, a a, was a a beautiful testament to what Martin was trying to do, and it sort of set forward in motion every good thing that's happened to him since then. Uh And and uh, you know, it was a very difficult emotional journey with Martin to to write that story. a lot of ups and downs and but ultimately it's one of the things i'm most proud of because it allowed him to continue on in his journey to tell a really important story.
2: Great. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you,
0: John. You I just have to say that in the time i've been here one of the things i always think about you is you are always very generous with your time, mm-hmm. with your talents. You've always had a very other focused rationale for doing what you do and the other things that you've done, like the Denver Actors Fund and all of that is always has the spirit of generosity and taking care of other people and tending, nurturing the theater community as a whole. So thanks for your generosity today coming in. Thanks for your generosity over the past two decades. Thank, thank you. Thank
1: you for saying that. If I, can I throw in one more thing? If <laughs> yeah. I mean, as long as, cause I'm glad you mentioned the Denver Actors Fund because Honestly, that has been very redemptive part of the second half of my career as a theater journalist. It's something I, I would have done if, while I was at the Denver Post if it were ethically appropriate. But it, it, it wouldn't have been appropriate to become that close to the people that you write about at that particular time. But since then, now, now that I'm not in a position where I'm a, a reviewer, to be in a place to use whatever influence I have to encourage people to raise money for Colorado theater artists and medical needs so that there are funds available when they have their emergency, not trying to figure out how to raise it afterward, has been the most fulfilling thing I've probably done as in my adult life, thanks to the help and support of literally hundreds of people who've jo- joined board. And so if anybody wants to learn more about it, I would just encourage them to go to denveractorsfund.org. Yeah,
0: it's remarkable and something that I hope other communities would copy because it it's incredibly...
1: Awesome.
2: It really wasn't that hard. It's a replicable model. It's a, repl- it's a, it's replicable a simple model. idea yeah. with yeah. wonderful results. Thanks.
0: Well, thanks.
2: Thank you, John. Thank you all for having me. Thank you so much for listening. We want to thank Jonathan Howard, our sound engineer, for always doing amazing work. We couldn't do this without you and, and webmaster and composer. Amazing
0: person.
2: <laughs> and we also want to thank DU for providing us with two grants. Without them, we could not make this podcast. The first one is the Camp Creative Arts Materials Fund, and the FRF, the Faculty Research Fund.
0: Awesome. And if you like what you're hearing, um, feel free to go into iTunes, which is where most of you are listening, and uh, give us a quick rating or uh, subscribe to us because Apple keeps track of those things. And so you'll help other people find us if you do those two things. Thanks a lot.
2: Bye.